Hello, my name is Robert Greenhill. I'm the Executive Chair of the Global Canada Initiative. Welcome to the Recovery Project, an initiative launched by Canada 2020, the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa, and Global Progress, focused on the long tail of economic and social recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, I'm glad to be joined by a very special guest. Minister Karina Gould is the Minister of International Development. Minister Gould is passionate about breaking down barriers for women, youth, and underrepresented groups here at home and around the world. Our conversation today will focus on Canada's response in the developing world during the pandemic and go beyond the pandemic to consider the Minister's vision for Canada's international development and sustainable and, and inclusive growth more generally after the pandemic. Let's get right to it. Thank you, Minister Gould, for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Robert. I'm really glad to be part of this conversation. Ever since then Foreign Affairs Minister Lester B. Pearson, uh, through the Colombo Plan in 1951, engaged Canada in helping other countries around the world, international assistance has been a key part of, of how we engage with the world. And every year, your ministry saves the lives of hundreds of thousands and transforms the livelihoods of tens of millions. But in a sense, the role you've been playing in Canada's role has become even more critical uh, with what we've all been experiencing with COVID. We, of course, are so aware of the challenges here at home, but internationally and in developing and emerging economies, the impact has been even greater. Could you please help us understand a little bit, you know, how are developing countries being affected by the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think one of the things is that it it kind of feels like we're 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 in a good space in Canada right now. You know, we've it seems like we've come out um, of the worst of it, and you know, we're we're different provinces and territories are opening up um, in, in different ways, but we can do more and more activities. Um, in the developing world, it's really the opposite. Um, mm -hmm. Predicting that, you know, in Latin America and Africa that, you know, they won't be reaching their, their peak really um, until late summer, early mid fall, maybe even the end of this uh, calendar year. And I mean, Right now, the the epicenter is is really in Latin America, um, with you know tens of thousands of cases um, every day in uh, countries like Brazil and Chile, uh, Peru, increasingly in Colombia and Argentina, and we're starting to see a real increase in cases in Central America as well. Uh, in Africa, um, Africa seemed to have fared pretty well, um, and there were a lot of questions in, in public health circles saying, oh, wow, Africa's, Africa's doing much better. Why, why is this? Um, but now we're starting to see the pandemic really take off. And if we use South Africa, perhaps as a bellwether, um, we can start to see, you know, there are tens of thousands of people um, getting sick on a daily basis on a daily basis and one of the most um, concerning figures is that there are 10,000 healthcare workers across Africa uh, who have um, contracted COVID-19 putting even greater strains on the healthcare system and that's the health crisis um, but the health crisis has also led to an economic crisis and you know certainly here in Canada and in other industrialized countries and other wealthier countries we have more fiscal power uh, to support citizens to make sure that you know they stay home when they're not feeling well um, and they don't go to work uh, and, and spread you know the disease around um, we've been able to you know support those that have been laid off so that you know like here in Canada through the Canada Emergency Response Benefit and support businesses who are facing financial challenges. Um, but 
those interventions in many developing countries are just not possible. And so, whereas a number of developing countries uh, instituted quite severe um, and effective lockdowns, um, you know, for the first three months, um, they you know, because of necessity, because people needed to feed their families, because um, they they didn't have the resources um, to to stay home, um, you know, started to go back to work. And, and a lot of people also work in the informal sector. Um, yeah. And so just the, by sheer necessity, you know, one of the lines that I've heard um, from um, from a developing, co- uh, from a country, uh, from a colleague in a developing country is, you know, people are choosing, do I die of COVID or do I die of starvation? And, um, you know, that's certainly something that, you know, we here in Canada wouldn't even want to contemplate. Um, But it is a reality for um, some of the world's poorest people. And so, you know, in addition to this very real health emergency, there's uh, an emergency when it comes to uh, food security and hunger uh, and nutrition. Um, It's also with regards to um, an increase in child labor and increased in early uh, enforced child marriage. There's, you know, big concerns at one point, there were 1.5 billion of the world's children that were out of school. And for many children around the world, school is not only a place of learning and growth, but it's a safe place. Uh, and it's a place where they might get their only full meal of the day. Um, and so it's, it really, you know, obviously here in Canada, it's had a tremendous impact on our day-to-day lives and it's been hard and we've had to sacrifice a lot. Um, but it's been even that much greater uh, and that much uh, more intense and that much more devastating in the developing world. Yeah, and it, it's really put a lot of these these uh, families and and some of these communities in a very precarious position. And it's it's uh, in addition to all those those elements, of course, in so many of these economies that we're trying to move beyond international assistance, we're looking at tourism or we're looking at mm-hmm. remittance. Their workers going abroad and being able to send money back home. And I saw some statistics about hundred billion dollar reduction in remittances because yeah. so many economies have basically shut down and sent all these guest workers home and so there's a massive devastating uh, economic impact uh through this reduction in tourism and remittances as well and and so how does canada engage on this how do we try to make a difference given we have so many challenges to address at home um what can we do what are we doing to try to help these difficult situations abroad yeah, it's an excellent question. And I mean, I think to your point, it's it's clear that, you know, Canada can't um, solve this all on our own, but we play a really important role in catalyzing others um, to join in the efforts. And so, um, you know, we kind of have several different mechanisms through which we're we're trying to help. Uh, the first is, uh, you know, supporting, um, you know, the international financial institutions who are doing a lot of the lending to help developing countries uh, really respond immediately. And so, um, you know, early on, we made a billion dollars available to the International Monetary Fund um, to, to support in this effort. We've been contributing to the international conversation on uh, debt relief um, and debt forgiveness um, and, um, you know, have have moved in that space, recognizing, you know, how important it is for a lot of developing countries to be able to, um, you know, instead of paying 
uh, their debt service payments or the interest on those payments to be able to invest that money into their healthcare sector, into uh, you know, cash transfer programs for uh, their vulnerable uh, citizens, so that they can, you know, really implement these these necessary public health measures. And so, Canada's really been um, at the forefront of those conversations. And the Prime Minister is actually um, leading uh, through the United Nations um, a high level dialogue on financing of 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 the SDGs and of development, particularly in the COVID context. So, there's kind of the the direct financial um, work that Canada is doing. Um, uh, internationally. And then there's the work that we're doing to respond um, on, a, on a humanitarian level. So we've announced mm-hmm. um, uh, $500 million uh, since the beginning of the crisis um, in uh, humanitarian um, development and um, uh, support for uh, research and development of diagnostics, therapeutics, and um, and vaccines. And so, you know, close to um, 100 million of that has gone uh, straight to the humanitarian efforts. So supporting the World Food Program, uh, delivering um, much needed uh, food assistance and PPE uh, to the poorest and the most vulnerable, but also importantly, supporting their logistics operation. Because, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, people might might not be top of mind for, for folks is that because of the closure of borders, because of the significant uh, decrease in air traffic, um, because of you know the the disruption in supply chains at just getting humanitarian workers and humanitarian supplies to um, affected areas has has become a, a critical challenge and uh, really the the United Nations um, logistics support has been a vital lifeline and so Canada has been uh, one of the the big contributors to that and, and actually right now um, you know we have a, a CAF operation in um, Central America and the Caribbean supporting the distribution of PPE in the region um, which which is so so important um, and then uh, also you know support to uh, the United Nations High Commission for refugees to make sure that you know they have access to um, to uh, hand washing stations because it's one thing for us to say uh, or for the WHO to say okay everyone um, you know the best way to combat this disease is you know through social distancing and frequent Hand washing. Well, if you think of where, uh, you know, the poorest, the most vulnerable live, it's often in really crowded conditions that don't necessarily have access to running water, let alone clean um clean running water. And so, um, you know, supporting, uh, you know, different humanitarian organizations actually um you know, put those measures in place is is really really important. Um, so that's been another area where we've been acting. And then, of course, you know that um, Canada's international assistance policy is grounded in feminist principles. And so we've also um, been really focused on ensuring that access to um, sexual health and reproductive services um, is ongoing. You know, I was just looking at some some statistics today. Um, that the UNFPA estimates that, for example, in in Pakistan alone, um, because of you know a lack of access to contraceptives due to the co- due to the pandemic, um, there could be two hundred and fifty thousand unplanned pregnancies um, this year, right? And that could result uh, they're estimating in two hundred thousand unsafe abortions. So. 
you know, more than ever, um, you know, access and support for SRHR, uh, access to contraceptives and family planning is is so crucial and it's becoming really difficult um, because of COVID, but we're doing what we can to support our partners um, on the ground. Yeah, and it's Canada really has taken on a leadership role there. And uh, people may, may actually not realize how disruptive the impact of COVID has been on such things as as contraceptions, because the manufacturing and supply chain systems have been disrupted. As you said, the distribution has been disrupted. And at a time when women are more vulnerable than ever, and there's often more food insecurity, you know, for them to then have unplanned pregnancies puts them and their families at risk in, in a way that we haven't seen in, in ages. Um, and this is certainly one of the areas where, where Canada has been stepping up. Um, is, is there anything in particular that the department and you have been focused on in this space over the last few months? Well, I mean, first of all, what we've been most focused on is kind of being in touch with our partners to see what their additional needs are in order to be able um, to keep delivering these services. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of those is just having the necessary PPE. And so one of the things that I've directed the department to do is to look at our existing programming and seeing um, what uh, what needs to be pivoted uh, in the immediate term to continue to deliver and meet our objectives um, on the ground. Um, you know, that's it's it's a big challenge. I mean, we're we're facing a you know a totally unprecedented situation, but we want to try as much as possible to keep doing our existing programming. Um, you know, we topped up um, you know some of our key partners uh, like Mary Stopes International and IPASS. Um, uh, and UNFPA by about another $9 million to, to help them um, through this and to provide additional supports um, in, in, um, in, in vulnerable contexts. Uh, so we continue to do this work. And then the other part of it too is, you know, I've been very vocal and um, Canada has been very vocal about recognizing the, the, the gendered nature and the gendered impact of the pandemic. And so you mentioned, uh, you know, an increase in gender-based violence. I mean, the UN Secretary General has referred this as, uh, referred to this as, you know, the other pandemic, um, because as people are staying at home, as there's increased economic uncertainty, uh, as there's rising food insecurity, we're seeing a lot of this, um, you know, taken out, quite frankly, on on women and girls and, and children. Um, and so this is a huge concern. And of course, um, you know, Canada had had has been and continues to lead on, um, you know, anti-sexual um, and gender-based violence work, but also on protection work and access to um, psychosocial supports. And again, in the pandemic, um, that that has been made more difficult. But you know, we continue to push and to advocate for this and to work with you know our UN partners, our multilateral partners, our NGO partners. Uh, to really make sure that they're taking um, a gendered approach and that they're understanding the the impact on um, on women and girls, on LGBTQ persons um, and other vulnerable groups um, when when they're designing their responses and when they're doing their interventions. And that's that's been really um, a key focus. And the other big concern, um, you know, that we we talked about, but I think is 
you know, really needs to be underscored and um, we need to keep working on it is this, um, this disruption in supply chains and the lack of access to contraceptives and family planning um, supports and services. And, um, you know, this, we've, we've made such tremendous progress. Um, in many ways, you know, when it comes to um, maternal um, and newborn and child health over the past um, decade, two decades, really, but uh, a lot of this progress um, stems to stems to be lost because because of the current situation. And so we're working very actively with all of our partners around the world and on the ground um, to see what we can do to support their work and make sure really that women and girls and, you know, particularly adolescent girls continue to have access to these services. Yeah. And because many, many people are talking about this becoming a lost decade if, if those kind of actions aren't taking place uh, quickly. And you get a sense talking with your colleagues in international development or cooperation that everybody's sort of trying to lean in right now. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that um, worries me is that um, some of my colleagues perhaps have shifted resources away from, you know, existing development programming uh, towards the emergency response. And and I, I don't think that, you know, I'm not saying not to respond to COVID because absolutely that's, that's the priority. But I think what we've learned, um, you know, from other epidemics, particularly, you know, the Ebola outbreaks in West Africa and more recently in the DRC is that if you shift all of your resources um, away from your existing programming to the immediate response, you end up having these, um, you know, these, these um, additional um, consequences that, mm -hmm. that are actually, you know, really, really terrible. So, you know, for example, we saw in, in West Africa in 2014, that when the healthcare system, you know, shifted to Ebola, which they had to because Ebola is a horrific disease and you needed to contain it and stop it and, and to be able to save lives, um, that, you know, that took resources away from, um, from maternal and newborn um, uh, support. And we saw this skyrocketing of maternal deaths uh, in the DRC, um, you know, there were, uh, you know, in the in the outbreak in um, in the eastern in um, eastern Congo, you know, uh, roughly two thousand people who died um, as a result of Ebola, which is which is terrible and awful. But at the same time, um, there was a measles outbreak in the country that that killed six thousand children. Um, and so, you know, you you have to try as best as possible to maintain other, um, you know, health interventions, um, less you have these, these really awful results. And I mean, we're already seeing, and, you know, I was reading recently that I think in the past four months, you know, 23 million children around the world have missed out on routine vaccinations because of, of COVID. Um, we're seeing, you know, in Afghanistan, um, polio, you know, rearing its, its terrible head uh, in provinces that haven't seen polio in, in 20 years because of these pause and campaigns. And then, you know, we're also in conversations and what we're seeing from, you know, organizations like the Global Fund is a worry that, um, again, because of, you know, um, people being afraid to go to healthcare systems because they, they don't, you know, they don't know if they're going to catch COVID or not. And so you can, you can understand that. Um, but at the same time, and also disruption in supply chains is that they're worried about significant increases in the number of people who die as a result of, um, 
HIV, uh, malaria, and, and tuberculosis, um, and also seeing, um, you know, a, a significant decrease in the supply of the drugs used to fight those those diseases. So, um, so so again, my my um, my objective has really been uh, to stay the course on Canadian programming, um, both in development and humanitarian, as much as we can, and you know for this additional for additional resources to go to to COVID nineteen because we can't lose sight of of the work that we were already doing. Um, otherwise, as you said this this could be a, a lost decade and and you know 2020 was supposed to kick off the decade of delivery on the SDGs so I'm I'm trying to do my part to keep pushing that <laughs> agenda. <laughs> well and, and, and you raise a really important point too because when, when you if, if we if we fall back overall uh, you know the most recent statistics talked about maybe some 50 or 60 million people falling back into extreme poverty which means we would have lost the last five years since the SDGs were, were announced, but but for some societies, there seems to be a danger that that they, they indeed may collapse. That uh, in the combination of all the different pressures, without the right kind of international assistance, wouldn't just lead to a linear stepping back, but actually might lead to the things going out of control. And and the World Bank just came up with a, a view on Afghanistan, where the extreme poverty rate is supposed to be going from fifty five to seventy two percent potentially over the next twelve months because of COVID and the shutdowns and all the people so dependent upon, um, you know, immediate income from livelihoods, which aren't available right now. And, and in, in a sense, you must be dealing with so many challenges in terms of deciding where to shift resources, what you focus on the immediate needs today versus continuing to build for the future. And also then communicating to your colleagues and to Canadians who have got so many immediate concerns here at home, what is the case for continuing to to invest abroad or indeed, in a sense, needing to do a surge for this next year or two to be able to address COVID without undermining support for these ongoing things? How do you make that case? Well, quite simply, I mean, to me, our global response is part of our domestic response, and we can't look at it um, as as separate because, um, you know, I, I think what a global pandemic makes excruciatingly clear uh, to so many is just how unbelievably interconnected our world is Indeed. and how, you know, the health of someone on the other side of the world can impact the health of someone here in Canada. And, you know, we, the, you know, the response that we've had in Canada, which I think, you know, was, was the right one for the time um, is we've had to, we've had to effectively shut down our borders, but, um, but that's not a sustainable way of, you know, Canada continuing, right? I mean, we're a country that relies heavily um, on international trade. I mean, we are an exporting nation and, you know, we, do business right around the world. We um, have family connections right around the world. Um, you know, we travel, there's tourism. We rely on tourism coming into Canada, you know, from coast to coast to coast. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's unsustainable for us to continue in this fashion, but we will not be able to return to what was, you know, our normal way of life. And, and I anticipate things, you know, will we'll continue to be um, different for, for the foreseeable future. Um, but, you know, it, we, we will not be able to, um, you know, live as fully as, as we did if we don't address what is a really global issue. And this is a threat that doesn't face 
one country or one community. This is a, a, a threat that faces humanity. And so um, this is something that you know, in order for Canada to to thrive, we we need to tackle this problem right around the world. And so, um, for me, that that has been the the main message that I've been sharing with with colleagues and and with Canadians. And I think the other thing, if I can just add, Robert, is that a lot of the um, struggles that we're facing here in Canada right now are struggles that people are facing around the world. Just. Mm-hmm that much greater. And so, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, as parents, you know, we can understand now what it means to, you know, not have childcare or not have access to school for your school age children and what that means on your own productivity. And so I think in a, in a way, um, this experience that we're going through actually allows us and enables us to empathize more with the struggles and challenges that people are facing in the developing world and have a better understanding um, of, of what, of what their lives are like. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, Canada is facing, a, you know, an enormous economic challenge on the horizon. And, and I think that, you know, what we really can't um, foresee or predict is, is what, you know, the longer term impact of COVID-19 will have on the global economy. But what I also think is really important is that we need to look at um, the investments that we're making right now in the humanitarian response in the longer term health system strengthening and you know, and sustainable and resilience building work that we're doing as an insurance policy. Um, Because Mm -hmm. if we don't do this right now, it's only going to get so much worse. And, you know, the, you know, the World Food Program talks about the fact that at the beginning of 2020, there were already 130 million people in, um, you know, in, in, in severe um, food insecurity. Well, they are estimating that that will double by the end of this year. And in fact, we're seeing that bearing out um, on the ground. And so, you know, we, we need to make timely investments. We need to make impactful investments. And we're doing that along with partners around the world. But it, it's not nearly enough um, at the moment. Um, you know, the UN has put out a, a global call. It's over $9 billion. And I think it's, you know, funded at about $2 billion. And and we need to all of us be working collectively to meet that objective um, so that, you know, we don't prolong not just the pandemic, but also, you know, the incredible economic fallout that that could come. Yes, because you're absolutely right, Minister Gold. None of our serves are safe until everybody's safe, whether it's from mm-hmm. a pandemic or any of these other issues. And there is this, this moment um, to see whether the world comes together or comes apart. Uh, over our collective response to this challenge. And, and this then leads to, given that the, the title of, of this podcast is The Recovery Project, um, looking beyond this particular challenge now, how, how does this fit into your vision for a more inclusive, resilient world in terms of, you know, how, how do we get through this period, but positioning the world and Canada's role in the world um, in an even more positive way going forward? Yeah, so I had this really great conversation with Mary Robinson a couple of weeks ago, and um, she is incredible and, and very optimistic, and I'm an optimistic person as well. But she really kind of inspired me because she said, um, 
that what she hopes people take away from COVID is a recognition that um, our collective action leads to collective results. And I think that actually what we've seen, you know, here in Canada is that, okay, when individuals all act together, we can actually, you know, lead to a, a pretty significant impact on our future and and outcomes. And, you know, the Prime Minister said it early on um, in the pandemic that, you know, we were at a moment where we can control our future and it will depend on the actions that we as individuals all take. And I think that actually that's... um, that's a really exciting prospect, right? Because often I think we feel that, you know, the world is, is beyond our control in many ways. But, you know, when it comes to the pandemic, the actions that we all take as individuals matter and the decisions that we take matter. And, and actually, in fact, government um, responses really matter. And so I'm hopeful that this also, you know, we can build on this when it comes to global health security and health system strengthening, um, which I think is is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and also when it comes to confronting and dealing with and tackling climate change, um, because you know, climate change hasn't disappeared because of COVID-19. Um, it's still very, very present and um, having an impact on the world. And in fact, you know, I, I would love for us to think about human health and planet health um, together and, and to really see those as, as interconnected um, uh, issues and, and, and pillars, really. And so, we also have this kind of unique moment in the sense that we've kind of paused a lot of activity in the world. And I think it should be a time when, you know, we are reflecting on the power structures that we have on the systems that we have in place and how we can rebuild um, a more inclusive, more equitable, more sustainable, more resilient world. Um, as we come out of the pandemic. And I think that, you know, there's, there's two things, right? First of all, I mean, Canada's feminist international assistance policy, in my view, is actually more relevant than ever, because, you know, we need to understand, um, you know, the, the power dynamics, the, you know, what we're, what we're seeing around the world right now, is that um, while the virus doesn't necessarily, um, you know, care who you are, um, it will infect you whether you're wealthy or poor, you're more likely um, to to catch it if you are poor because you don't have the ability to isolate. You don't have the ability to stay home from work. You don't maybe live um, in a place that is properly ventilated and not crowded. Um, you know, there are a whole bunch of things that, um, you know, because you are more vulnerable, because you, um, you know, are in a, inequitable situation that are impacting you even more. And then we're also seeing, you know, this increased burden of unpaid care work, right? Um, Whether it is, and, you know, here in Canada, we're calling it a she session because, you know, the number of women who um, are out of work is far greater than the number of men. But at the same time, the number of women who are frontline healthcare workers, um, you know, right around the world, I think it's, it's over 75%. And, and then, you know, you also have women who, um, whose productivity has decreased because um, even if both parents are, are working from home, you still see women taking on a greater burden of homeschooling and care work, caring for sick um, 
relatives um, or neighbors or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, there's like, it, it's just for me, it's like, okay, the, the feminist international assistance policy was, is, is kind of designed to try and tackle these issues. And so the FIAP really provides, you know, this guide in terms of how, how we move out of this um, and move forward into just, just a more equal world. And, and it's not just women, right? I mean, and it's, it's, it's marginalized individuals. I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, just this, this existential threat to Indigenous peoples in South America, because they have been so disproportionately impacted in the Amazonian basin, and they don't have access to the same kind of of healthcare or resources um, or technology. And so, you know, there's so many different layers um, of uh, discrimination, inequality, in um, that we need to be tackling and, and reimagining, um, you know, what what a more equitable world can look like. And, and I think we absolutely have to include a climate lens as well, because that's another issue um, that's going to require collective action to face this threat against humanity. And, and I guess, uh, as you say, Minister Gould, the, the COVID has, in a sense, exposed or exacerbated all these pre-existing injustices. But the response has also shown it's possible to do great things quickly to address challenges. You know, the, the way in which countries around the world shifted the fiscal spending, the, the, the um, global uh, work that's going on in collaboration to come up with vaccines in, in, a, in a question of months instead of years, in a sense, it does show that with determination, uh, we actually can focus and address these uh, these inequities or these inequalities. And so in a sense, it gives one even a greater sense of impatience to be bold and really addressing them. Oh, completely. I mean, I think, you know, and that's where my um, my optimism and my inspiration comes from is that, you know, as we are facing this collective threat, you know, there, there is a will, there is, um, you know, a, a concerted effort to try to tackle this in a collective way. And, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of things we could talk about with regards to vaccines, but actually, you know, the, the ACT accelerator and the COVAX facility, you know, while still very much in their, their infancy, um, are, are totally novel ideas that are specific specifically designed to try and address these inequities and avoid the past uh, the mistakes of the past and um, so you know, I'm not going to say it's it's a perfect solution, and you know, obviously, um, you know, as as the virus rages out of control and in many parts of of the developing world, you know, we we certainly haven't got the solution, but um, I I do see cause for optimism. Um, but again, it's um, you know, it, it's really about how we're we going to address this. I think the figure that I heard was, you know, the industrialized countries have um, have put 11 trillion dollars into, um, you know, stabilization and recovery, you know, between um, kind of the OECD countries. Um, that's a, an incredible figure, right? Yeah. Um, but we haven't, we haven't done in the developing world. And it's really different from, you know, the response that we had in 2008, 2009, where we had this looming um, food crisis and, um, you know, the developed countries really responded and, and, and avoided famine um, in, in a truly incredible way. And that's something we should be really proud of. But we haven't quite seen that response um, this time around. And I think that's what we need to spur. I, I think your the the statistics just came out would, would confirm that in two thousand eight or nine there was a collective commitment to maintain or increase international assistance, 
And um, so far, there hasn't been that commitment, and some countries have actually cut it. So the UK just last week announced a, a massive cut uh, to their development assistance because they're at 0.7, which is higher than the rest of us. But as their economy shrank, they chose to therefore say they should be shrinking their support, which means that there's a danger that international assistance could actually fall this year when there's probably the greatest need um, for supporting these societies that we faced in decades. Um, and there's no doubt that, that Canada's voice on this will be important. And the prime minister's co-chairing that uh, financing for COVID recovery and beyond is just one example of that. Um, and I imagine this is going to be a, an, an issue that is going to become even more front and center in the months ahead. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. And that's why, you know, I I just keep going back to, you know, that our global response is a part of our domestic response because we cannot look at them in isolation because we are so interdependent and interconnected. Um, and, you know, this this isn't something that one country can solve all on its own. I mean, you know, we've, we've said it before, but, you know, so long as there are cases in the world, there is a risk of a further outbreak. Um, and, you know, that's going to be something that we continue to deal with. But that's why, you know, the investments and, you know, Canada co-leading um, in the ACT accelerator, you know, there are there are three pillars and kind of a, a fourth overarching one is that, you know, investing in diagnostics and therapeutics and vaccine uh, research development and, and equitable distribution, but then also in, in facilitating and, and developing the governance structures. And, and that's where Canada is playing a, a very significant role. Um, and so we, we need to we need to keep doing that and we need to keep working collectively and just recognizing that, you know, this is something that we we have to be collaborating on. That's right. And for people who maybe not be aware, the, the ACT Accelerator, this is the WHO coordinated initiative, the access to COVID-19 tools, um, and where Canada has been involved right from the beginning, and which is really a new uh, governance approach to, to try to pool capabilities on and, and resources to come up with the right uh, diagnostics and treatments and, and vaccines. And, and I believe as part of that is also to establish an equitable way in terms of determining how these should be distributed uh, so that we don't have a, a, a covenant of an apartheid of vaccine access in the future where only the privileged few get to it. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And I think, you know, all three pillars are maybe equally important, right? Um, there's obviously been a big focus on vaccines, um, which is understandable and um, is, is really important. But, um, you know, we've been really pushing in Canada uh, with colleagues around the world on making sure that there are uh, significant support and investments in the diagnostics and the therapeutics um, pillars as well. Uh, you know, one of the recent conversations I had with the WHO on diagnostics was that, you know, we need to make sure that developing countries have the ability to to do rapid testing and to do the contact tracing mm -hmm. so that, you know, we don't have to do these entire country shutdowns. Um, it can be, you know, more um, concentrated um, and, you know, less uh, less impactful on, on the entire economy. Um, so, so that's one important pillar. But then on the therapeutics as well, I mean, there are a number of really promising vaccine candidates right now, which is, which is a really exciting um, prospect. Uh, but it's still going to be 
many months, maybe even a couple of years before they're, you know, at a stage where they receive regulatory approval um, and are produced at a scale of that can be, you know, distributed in a mass way around the world. And so if you think about that in the interim, there's going to be millions of people who get sick and hundreds of thousands of people who probably die. And so what more can we be doing on the therapeutic side of things uh, to, you know, to, to ease the burden on the healthcare system and to hopefully save more lives. And so those are two of the pillars that, that I'm um, particularly interested in right now and, and continue to push for because they're, they're really important and, and maybe even more so um, in the developing world than, than in the developed world uh, where the healthcare systems are weaker and where the interventions that we have in the developed world are are just not just not present at a large enough scale um, in poorer countries. Wrestling with these kind of literally life and death issues must be quite a, a challenge. I mean, what what gives you um, hope or confidence or any sense of optimism coming out of this? <laughs> Uh, yes, this is challenging, um, <laughs> to say the least. And uh, I have days where I'm like, wow, I, I never would have imagined that I would become Minister of International Development um, in the midst of a, a, a global pandemic of such huge proportions. <laughs> um, but, but I think also what gives me hope is that every day I know that I'm doing something to try and help and try and save lives and that, um, you know, the conversations that I'm having, the uh, funding decisions that we're making, the support that we're providing to, you know, frontline workers on the ground in some of the toughest places in the world. Um mm-hmm enables them to do that work. Um, And, you know, we have just seen like such incredible bravery and creativity on behalf of, you know, people who are working on the ground. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm always eternally grateful and in awe and proud of, of, of the people who, who do this work. And so um, knowing that, you know, every single day um, I'm trying to do my part um, to lift people up and to save lives, um, you know, keeps me going. Um, And, um, and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's really hard. (laughs) And I, I have this like morbid ritual of checking the statistics every single day um, of what's going on around the world and um, getting, you know, briefings on, on different countries, which are, which are really hard to hear, but you know, it's, you have to, to make sure that, you know, we're looking at every single place where we're operating and saying, okay, what can we do to help? What can we do to address this? Um, What can we do to play our part? Um, And, you know, as I said, Canada can't do everything, but we're we're doing what we can. And and I, I think listeners may not be aware of just how important that scale is. So we 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 talked about the on, on the issue of, of contraception, for example. I think since 2017, Canada's support has empowered one and a half million uh, additional women in the most uh, vulnerable communities around the world. The kind of of uh, interventions that have been you've been doing for food security, given some of the challenges, are are literally keeping millions of people uh, who would otherwise be very food insecure and either starving to death, or if they're in the case of young people growing up with severe uh, physical and 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 mental uh, illnesses and challenges because of malnutrition when they're very young. So no, we can't do everything, but we actually have done. A significant amount in, in a number of these key areas. The food security was one which you had mentioned, but it's something also that uh, 
you had focused quite a bit of time on right from the very beginning, I think, because going into it, there had already been with the locusts and the other elements, almost like, you know, all yes. the plagues descended upon us in 2020. And this was already a ch challenge before COVID broke out, yes. right? And this is a space where Canada has traditionally played a leadership role. Yeah, so I mean, um, you know, 2020 was already shaping up to be the worst humanitarian year uh, in history. Um, so uh, COVID just uh, made it <laughs> twice as worse um, as as it was already, you know, on track to be. And with regards to food security, I mean, just the the sheer number of people who who are on the move um, around the world, you know, whether they're refugees or internally displaced who are in extraordinarily yeah. precarious positions, the locust issue that um, you know Africa, east particularly Eastern Africa, but moving all the way up into um, Asia. Um, and the Middle East and Asia, uh, you know, is 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 quite a, a, a frightening one when it comes to you know availability of food. Um, but then, just with regards to supply chains, and you know, we even see it here in Canada. You know, with regards to farmers, not they, the uncertainty of saying, okay, well, should I plant my crops? Is there going to be a market for them? Like, what am I? How am I going to transport? Like, you know, all these questions that that people have. I mean, you know, we've recently gone from um, talking about you know, food insecurity to um, famine prevention, which um, is is even that more concerning. And, and again, another reason why it's really important to place attention on this. And I recently co-hosted um, uh, two high-level meetings, uh, two um, group of friends meetings at the United Nations on on food security and recognizing, you know, that this this is, it's not just about delivering emergency food aid, it's about the entire food system and the supply chain and making mm -hmm. sure that, you know, there's, there's sufficient agricultural inputs for small-scale farmers. And again, the majority of small-scale farmers in the world are actually women so um you know it's 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 about making sure that we're addressing issues of of gender equality access to food but then also it's it's a question of, of economic growth and it's all tied to climate change as well um and so you know part of my mandate letter um from the prime minister uh, was to address um, the intersection between women's rights and, and climate change and, and not always, but in, in many cases that often intersects um, in, in the agricultural space um, and in the food security space. And so um, doing work with organizations like FAO and, and IFAD, but then also here in Canada, like Soko Devi and um, the Canadian Food Grains Bank, which, which does really incredible work um, right around the world, supported by Canadian farmers um in this space uh has has been really important to me and just uh, like highlighted to the nth degree with regards to covid as you know we go from 130 million to 250 million people who who are in acute um acute food needs and and this 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 congruence of them as, as you mentioned some of these places that are most food insecure are also the places that are, are the most subject to desertification or other challenges from, from climate change. So the places like Mali or, or Niger or some of the places in the Sahel where Canada has been very engaged uh, are, are the ones where this confluence of things could, could really lead to significant challenges. And it's interesting how the, the different themes of sustainability and looking at three through a gender lens aren't just of, of uh, theoretical interest, but are really a question of life and death 
for the individual and for the communities in terms of, of being able to deal with these things together. How, how do you find the challenge of, of engaging with these communities that are under so much stress from so many different areas uh, when, when Canada is trying to assist them on, on the issues of, of COVID, but also these other areas? Well, the, Robert, this is one of the really big challenges of COVID because normally, um, in normal times, I would be traveling to these communities and engaging directly with, um, you know, folks on the ground to hear from them what their challenges are and to help make sure that their voices and their needs are, you know, the form the basis of what our programming is. Um, but obviously, you know, we we can't do that um, right now in terms of actually traveling there. And so um, we're relying on, um, you know, networks that we have on the ground, um, trying to connect virtually as much as possible to hear what's going on, um, engaging with our missions and our partners around the world, um, you know, to to get a sense of what, you know, they're hearing and seeing mm-hmm. on the ground and, and what the needs are. Um, and uh, over the past number of months, I, I think I've spoken with more of my counterparts um, in the developing world than I probably would have had to have the occasion in a whole four-year term to, to really hear from them about what's going on in, in their countries and, and where the needs are, are greatest. Um, but it's also been really important for me to try and hear, um, you know, the voices of women um, and youth activists um, on the ground and, and to get their perspectives and to make sure that we're listening um, to the issues that that they're raising. Um, but it's it's been a huge challenge. And I think that's one of the things that I've um, I found the hardest Um over these past four or five months is it's really difficult to have those individual level conversations just because, you know, access to technology, um, there's such a huge disparity um, around the world and particularly in the communities where we work. And, and talking about communicating, what, what would be the message you'd like to leave with, with the, the listeners to this podcast today? Well, so a couple of things. The first one is, you know, what I was saying about our our collective action leading to results. I think that is one of the most empowering, um, you know, things that we can take away from COVID-19. You know, this is an incredibly difficult and challenging time. Uh, but, you know, we as... Um, you know, as, 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 you know, members of our community, as members of our country, as members of, as, as global citizens, you know, we can collectively act to achieve a result and, and to achieve a change. And, and for me, that is something that is, that is really empowering. And to recognize that, you know, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's climate change, um, you know, or whether it's, you know, people being forced to move to flee violence or because they don't have access to food or, you know they're um, they're 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 under threat for for other reasons. Um, that you know we are we're we're in a phase where we're facing issues and challenges that um, you know are are threats to humanity. And so we need to have collective responses, and we need to collaborate to address those. Um, and uh, I'm I'm hopeful that those are the lessons that we're taking um, from today, and knowing that we actually you know, can control our future. We just have to choose to do it and we have to work together. Thank you, Minister Gould, for this wonderful conversation and all you're doing to help address the issues today while also supporting the developing countries prepare for tomorrow. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted I could have this conversation. <laughs> if you want more information about the Recovery Project, please visit recoveryproject.org and to follow Minister Gould at Karina Gould on Twitter. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I'm Robert Greenhill. Stay safe and keep engaged. Thank you very much.